0: You're listening to the Light for Living podcast, featuring the sermons of Emmanuel Baptist Church in El Dorado, Arkansas, where Dr. Clark Whitney serves as senior pastor. Join us for verse-by-verse messages through the life-changing Word of God. Along the way, we'll also feature devotional thoughts, Bible studies, and interviews, all designed to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it out. Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3. The title of the message this morning is The Church That Kicked Jesus Out. The Church That Kicked Jesus Out. It's good to be with you on this beautiful fall morning. I notice uh, many of you were early to church today. Maybe you didn't fool with your clock. And I expect to see many of you filling the altars at the invitation because I know Many of us made deals with God at the end of the Razorback game yesterday. (laughs) You can't do that, okay? I'm glad to be with you, and we are looking at the last church that the Lord Jesus gives a letter to before entering the next part of Revelation. We've looked at seven churches, and today is the church at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea. And this church was the lukewarm church. In fact, it's the one you may have heard about before this series, if you heard about any of them. But Jesus writes letters to his church because the church belongs to him. And he gives them usually some encouragement and a way that they are, are doing things right. And he'll give them a challenge, a way that they need to repent and turn to him. And then he always says, Let those who have an ear to hear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's jump right on in today. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14. If you got it, say got it. The Word of God says, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire. With me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray one more time. Lord, you're good to us. Would the Holy Spirit anoint our eyes and open them up so that we may see you for who you really are? God, that you would change us, that if we are lukewarm, God, you would get us on fire. God, if we think we have it together, we think that we're running the show, God, would we repent today and turn our lives and our church and everything we have over to you. We ask that you would increase, that we would decrease, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a little boy one Sunday morning that was going home with his mama after church. And on the way home, he, he, he suddenly announced out of nowhere to his mama, Mama, i decided something. I'm going to be a minister when I grow up. Well, the mom said, that's okay with us, son, but, but what made you decide that? Well, the little boy said this, here's the deal. I got to go to church on anyways, and it would be more fun to stand up and yell than to sit down and listen. <laughs> I'll try not to yell too much. My mother in laws here today, so I must be on my best behavior. But let us all listen to what Jesus says to his church today. I want you to see, first of all, Jesus' assessment of the church. His assessment of the church. It's his church. He knows everything. He was before everything. He created everything. The church exists for him, and he sees everything that goes on in my life and in yours, and he sees everything that goes on in the church. So that when he gives an assessment of, of this church, He sees things as they really are. You and I sometimes put on masks. We try to hide things or or we try to shield ourselves from opening up to other people, but you can't do that with Jesus. He sees and he knows everything, and guess what? He loves you, and he loves you too much sometimes to leave you the way that you are. And this church that he loved was not following him and not doing what he said. To the angel at of church of Laodicea in verse 14, what you need to know about Laodicea is that this was the southernmost city of the seven cities that were all together in modern-day Turkey. It was located on the Lycus River. And there were three things that are very important for you to know about this city as we go through these verses. Number one, it was a banking and financial center of that part of the world. Banking and financial center. A lot of prosperity, a lot of money passed through Laodicea. It was also known for its garments that the city produced, manufactured. In fact, they had bred a very specific kind of sheep that was there that produced a very soft black wool. And they made uh, beautiful rugs and garments out of that. They were very well known for their fine clothing. Third thing that you need to know is uh, that that it was a banking center, it was known for its garments, but it wasn't built because of uh, the water it was not there when it was built. It was built for military reasons. So it wasn't built so that it would have a good fresh source of water. They had to pipe in their water from about six miles to the south through an aqueduct. And more on that in a moment. This is Laodicea, and Jesus said, I'm writing, and I'm the, the words I'm giving you are of the amen. The words of the amen. Now, we say amen and praise the Lord, and I wish you'd say it more, but, but this is the name for Jesus. Uh, he ascribes this word to himself here. And when he's saying amen, what the word means is true and agreeable and consistent. When we say amen, we're agreeing with what was said. Well, Jesus is saying, I am the amen. What does that mean? That Jesus is entirely consistent. All the promises of God are fulfilled in him, and in him they are yes and amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, People say the church is full of hypocrites. Well, yes, that's true. To a degree, all of us are hypocritical. We all need grace. But Jesus is not hypocritical. What he says and what he does always line up. And he said, I'm the faithful and true witness. Everything that he says is a true testimony of who God is. The Bible says that he is the express image of God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And anything that he says about God, you can take it to the bank. Then he says, I'm the beginning of God's creation. Now, Jehovah's Witness would say that, that he was created by looking at this verse. But if you go back to the Greek, it's very clear. This is not saying that he was created in the beginning, but that he is the beginning. He's the source. Everything began through him. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and and through him, not one thing was made that was not made. Everything was created through Jesus. He's the source. And so he's looking at this church as the amen and the faithful and true witness and the beginning of creation. And the first things he sees is their blandness. Their blandness. Uh, They weren't really spicy, they weren't really sweet, they weren't really hot, and they weren't really cold. They were pretty bland and lukewarm. And Jesus said right away, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now remember, Laodicea was built for military reasons. It didn't have its own water supply. To the north of Laodicea, uh, well, there were th- three towns together, kind of like Camden, Magnolia, and Eldorado, I guess. But to the north, there was Hierapolis, and it had healthy, beautiful, hot springs. To the south was the city of Colossae, and it had Cold springs that were clean and refreshing to drink from. But Laodicea had perpetual problems with its water. It couldn't get clean water. They had to bring it by six miles to the south through an aqueduct. By the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was unclean, nasty, the kind of water that makes you sick. Imagine drinking a cold Coke on a summer day, and you leave it in the truck for a little too long. And you drink most of it, but there's that little bit at the bottom. And you take a sip, forgetting that you've left it out, and you just want to spit out that backwash Coke right back into the cup. I I got up yesterday. I'm not a fair-weather coffee drinker. I'm a fall-weather coffee drinker. I only like to drink hot coffee when it's hot outside. Anybody with me? And other times, I just drink my little energy drink, but anyways— I was drinking it yesterday and I got a little distracted. I wasn't able to savor my coffee. Some of us, you just can't function until you've had that first cup of Joe. Some of y'all are like Jesus, you just spit that coffee right out of your mouth because you don't like it. But, but I had done a few things around the house and I was cleaning up a little bit and, and we had the kids out and my mother-in-law here, lots of things going on. And I set my coffee down for too long and it got to be lukewarm. Nobody likes lukewarm coffee. If you go down to Ziggy's, they'll either give you iced coffee or hot coffee. Nobody's advertising room temperature coffee because nobody likes to drink it. Well, Jesus is saying, just like the water in your city that's neither hot or cold, that's the way I see you. You're not cold and you're not hot. And in verse 16, he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That kind of goes against the image of Jesus that we sometimes have. But he can't tolerate half-hearted Christians. He can't tolerate self-centered Christians. And I believe that that this is not saying that the believers there would lose their salvation. This is a rejection, but it's not a total rejection. It's a call to total repentance. Jesus is not saying, I'm I'm going to be away with you forever, but I, I can't stand it the way that you are right now. You're, you're not hot, you're not on fire the way that you once were. You're half-hearted in your giving and in your attendance and, and your witnessing and your love for each other and your ministry. And you think you have it all together, but to me, spiritually, you're lukewarm. This lukewarm word, it, it means half-hearted or complacent, lazy, lethargic, indifferent. And you and I would, would not want to be lukewarm in the things that matter the most to us. Imagine doing your vows and standing before God and the people at your wedding and only saying half of them or saying, uh, I'm just going to commit to this halfway. Or only going to work and showing up half of the time. Or you go to the doctor and old Dr. Smart gives you a prescription and says you better take this. And you come back and say, Doc, I've taken it, but I've only taken half the pills. Halfway is not all the way. It's not good enough. And that's what the church had become. And the Lord Jesus doesn't want any fence-sitters in his church. Yes, we're saved by grace, and as we'll see, he's the source of our our power and the fire within us. But a halfway Christian is not really a good-for-anything Christian at all. Half-hearted Christians don't win souls. They don't make a difference. Half-hearted churches don't reach their community. And Jesus said, don't be halfway, but deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And you can't be on fire for God and you and I still be the center of our own universes at the same time. A self-centered life is not a life that's on fire for God. And we need to continually remind ourselves that we need to give everything to Jesus and in that we gain everything. But you and I try to gain everything and still give a little bit to Jesus. The thing is, is that when you try to gain everything, you end up gaining nothing. But when you give it all to Jesus and say, here's all of me, I'm not going halfway anymore. You gain everything that you need. That's their blandness. I want you to see also their boasting. They were proud of who they were. Jesus said, For you say, I am rich, I prospered, I need nothing. They were very wealthy. They thought that their material prosperity meant that they were spiritually prosperous. Because they had wealth in the bank, that they would have spiritual wealth, but that wasn't the case. There was a great earthquake that leveled Laodicea, and they had to rebuild. Remember, we talked about the church in Philadelphia. There were some earthquakes, but but this one leveled the city, and the Roman government, the federal government of Rome, said, we're going to send you some money. Well, Laodicea was so prideful and into their own wealth that they said, you know what, we've got all the things that we need. We don't need your money. They were self-sufficient. They trusted in their stuff instead of the Savior. Possessions are all right, and we are so blessed. But we should never let our possessions possess us. We should never confuse material prosperity with spiritual prosperity. I looked it up this week, and if you Google how rich am I, you can find out that one adult in the United States making $30,000 a year after tax is richer than 95.3% of the world. You and I, compared to the rest of the world, are very rich. There's nothing wrong with having material things, but when we let our possessions possess us, we can become lukewarm and half-hearted very quickly. I read about recently the, the wealthiest billionaire in Singapore. His name was Philip Ng. And Philip and his brother Robert Ng, they're worth... 12.1 million dollars, billion, excuse me, 12.1 billion dollars. Very, very wealthy. They own the Far East organization, which is the largest landowner, private, uh, renting out businesses, commercial property, residential space in Singapore. And he recently did an interview, Philip did, with his brother and him combined 12.1 billion dollars. And here's what he said. I was always in search for a better life, a better purpose, a better me, a better everything. I was just looking at all the wrong things. But when I realized there is no better me or better things without Jesus, then it all snapped into place. Maybe all I had to do is to look deeper. I treasure my faith more than anything, so I wish for everyone to have that same peace and joy. It sure beats a lot of money and material things that you may have. Well, this rich man found out that spiritual wealth is much greater than material wealth. They had boasting, but there also was some blindness. The way they saw themselves was not the way they really were. They were not realizing, Jesus said in verse 17, that they were wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. You and I can think we got it going on. We've got the threads, we've got the job, we've got the picture-perfect family. Everything in life is going our way. But the way that God sees us is the way that we really are. And we don't see that, that indeed without him, we are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Uh, even a church can think we've got it all together. We have so many wonderful blessings. But we can think that we are the source of our blessings, of our building and of our finances and of our, our ministries. And when we think that we've got it, and then we make our plans in the church or in your family or in your life, and then you ask God to go back and bless them instead of humbling ourselves and seeking his face and listening to his voice. Now, the Odyssey, remember, was a banking center. Jesus said, you're the financial center of the Mediterranean world. You've got all these, these wealthy things, but you're really poor. They also had a medical school they were famous for that produced eye salve, And they would produce it in little tablets that they would export all over the world. They would crush it up and uh, put it over their eyes, and that would solve a common eye disease of the day. There was actually a medical school in Laodicea, so not only were they known for their banks, but also their medical system. And Jesus said, you think you can see physically, but but you're blind. Well, and then he also said that that you're naked. They took such great pride in these special sheep that had the softest wool— but Jesus said, like Adam and Eve, you are naked in your sin. This was his scathing assessment. But I want to give you the good news. He gave them some, some encouraging advice. Some encouraging d- advice. See, the river, the, the source of water in their town, only gave them lukewarm, nasty, make-you-sick-and-throw-up, backwash water. But Jesus said, if you will come to me, I will give you living water. All the problems that you have in your church, all the spiritual condition that you have, it can be solved if you will simply come to me, to the source. Even in our lukewarmness, he loves us. Even in our straying from him, he saved us. And the Bible says that he is knocking at the door waiting to come in. If we'll come to him, we'll find that he'll give us everything that we need. Come to him this morning and give him, uh, he'll give you provision. He'll give you provision. Jesus said in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. David says in Psalm 19 that, that God's word is more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. Psalm 12, 6 says the says the words of the Lord, the word of God, are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of the earth, purified seven times the number of perfection jesus said if you'll come back to me i'm going to give you my word and your my word is going to make you clean and and equip you and convict you and get you doing what i want you to do but then he said come to me and i'll give you the provision of good works jesus said i'm going to give you not only my gold i'm going to give you white garments so that you may clothe yourself the bible pictures our righteousness, the things that we try to do to be right before God, and the things that you and I do on our own, folks, are filthy rags. They're not worth anything. But the Bible also uses clothes as righteousness, describing the perfect righteousness of Christ. That he is clothed in white, meaning that Jesus always does the right thing. He never sinned. Not only did he never sin, he always does what is pure and holy and excellent. And where there is no way that you and I can get white garments before God on our own. And if God looks at us in our own righteousness, and our own, our own way of doing things, and our own self-made ways, the Bible says that's like filthy rags. And just like he'll spew us out of his mouth, God cannot look on filthy rags and be right with those. But when we accept Jesus into our life, the one that became sin for us, the perfect son of God, he takes our filthy rags, as he did on the cross, and he gives us his robes of righteousness. He is the source of righteousness. And what happens from righteousness is then we can do what is good and pleasing to God. Then we can do the good works that we ought to do. We can't do them on our own, but when we come to Jesus and we're clothed in his righteousness, all of a sudden rivers of living water start flowing from deep inside. So when we put on Christ, we get, we get robes of righteousness. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? And they were up there and they saw Jesus in robes shining as white as the light. So we need the good works of Jesus. We need to return to those. We also need to return to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, uh, to you bankers, I'm going to give you gold refined by the fire. To you who are proud in the wool of your black sheep, I'm going to give you white garments, even though you're naked. And to those who are so proud of their medical eye salve, here's what I'm going to give you. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He gave them a salve to anoint. In the Bible, the anointing comes from the Holy Spirit. The the anointing comes from the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. His Holy Spirit is the one that seals us and anoints us. We need the power and the fire of the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit to open up our spiritual eyes. On our own, we're blind. The Spirit opens up our eyes. Not only will he give us provision, if we come to him, he'll give us affection. Some of us look for affection in in toxic relationships or just fake approval from social media. But don't miss these first four words in verse 19. Jesus said, even to this church, he said, I'm going to speak you out of my mouth. Those whom I love. Would you underline that? Don't, Don't just move on to the rest of the verse You'll never know how much Jesus loves you. Even in your sin, even in your filthy rags, he's the one that created you. And even when you were dead in your sins, he gave his life for you. And he loves you more than you could ever imagine unconditionally. But he loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you the way that you are. He commended his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Even when we were lukewarm, even when we stray, even when we are are self-righteous, he loves us. Come to him and he'll give us correction. Affection and correction are not mutually exclusive. If you have a child, you'll learn really quick, it'll break your heart to correct them. But you love them too much to not correct them. The Bible uses the picture of a parent disciplining a child to describe the way that God, our Father, disciplines us. In verse 19, Jesus said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. If I love you, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to wake you up. And Jesus said, I'll reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. The reason why he allows us sometimes to come to the end of our rope and experience the consequences of our own sin is so that we will look up to him and realize our need for him. That's a sign that we belong to God when we are in sin and he gets our attention. He loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. In the book of Hebrews, it describes it like this. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child that is never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all his children, me and you, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. If you're living in sin and God's not getting your attention, maybe you're not his child and you need to turn to him. If he's waking you up through your circumstances or consequences of your sin, the Bible says that that. Both me and you, all of his children, he disciplines. And God doesn't want any spoiled brats who are not disciplined. Come to him and he will not only give you affection and discipline, he'll also give you communion. This is the church that had kicked Jesus out. They thought they had it going on, but Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Jesus is not a beggar or a drifter. He's the master of the home. And he's trying to get back into to the home that's already his. To share a meal in the ancient world was like sharing life, as one commentator said. It, it was a, a communal thing. It was an intimate thing. If I invite you over to my house for dinner, it means that we're friends. We're going to get to know each other. And Jesus said, I'm standing at the door of the church and of your heart, and I'm knocking. And if anyone will hear my voice even amidst all the madness of their own self-sufficiency, and if they'll just open the door, I'll be right there. And I will come in, and I will eat with him, and he with me. This is talking about fellowship, communion, intimacy, knowing him in every detail of your life. Jesus is even knocking today. He's getting our attention. If you wonder why you feel so far from God, it's not because he has moved from you. He is standing there knocking and pleading, but he's not going to kick down the door. Yes, he's sovereign. Yes, it's his house, but he is convicting you and he wants you to open up your life and your church to him so that he can come in and do what only he can do. You can't fix yourself enough before you open the door up. If Jesus knocked at my house today, I'd be picking up little toys and sweeping, and and we'd be going crazy. But you can't do that in your life. You have to let him in, and then he'll start cleaning you up. Amen? And he'll give you communion. In verse 21, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne. Not only are we going to know him in in communal fellowship and intimacy, we're going to reign with him through all eternity. Even the lukewarm, when you return to him. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You and I might not have a lot of material things in this life, but the Bible says in eternity, because of what Jesus has done for us, we will reign with him on his throne. What a blessing. And then he closes by saying this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. If you have an ear to hear today, Jesus is standing at the door of your life, and he wants to come in and take control. He wants what's already his. He made you. He knows you. He died for you. And he wants to come in because he knows that when you make him Lord, as he already is Lord, he will change your life and do so much more than what you can do on your own. As the band comes up, I want to enter into a time of invitation. There once was a pastor in California that that issued an invitation kind of like the one we're about to give today. And a little five-year-old boy came forward and said, Pastor, I want to call on Jesus to save me today. little five-years-old walked down the aisle by himself. Well, the pastor was a little worried that the boy was was too young. And it's good to talk to children and make sure they understand what what they're doing when they call on Jesus to save them. So the pastor took him into his office— And the pastor started asking this five-year-old boy all these questions, deep theological questions. And the boy just kept getting more and more and more confused. And the pastor and the boy kept getting more and more and more flustered. Finally, the little boy was exasperated. He had had enough. He said, Pastor, when you asked people to come forward, you said, if I called on Jesus, he would save me. Now, did you mean that or not? Well, the pastor shut his mouth and led the little boy to pray to receive Christ. If you'll call on Jesus today, if you'll open up the door to your heart, the best you know how, he will come into your life. He'll teach you his word. He'll help you do good things to honor him. He'll give you the wisdom and insight you need with your situations in life. But all you need to do to begin with is open that door and let him come in. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why won't you let him come in? Thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with a friend. We hope you'll tune back in next time to the Light for Living podcast.